you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Morning. Uh, for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm Tim, and I'm one of the elders here. It's an honor to be sharing this time with you this morning. Um, before we begin, I want to re-extend the invitation uh, that was mentioned at the beginning of service to join a neighborhood parish. Parishes are how we do life together here at Sojourn, and we say it every week, but we believe that the church is not an event to attend, but a people to belong to, and neighborhood parishes are part of that model where we share a meal together, pray together, and do life together. So if you're not already in a neighborhood parish, there's a map over to my right, and I or one of our other leaders would love to meet you over there after the service to get you connected. And today we're continuing our, ser- our series in Hebrews. And one of the ways to understand the book of Hebrews comes from a commentator who says that Hebrews is all about the promise of the old covenant achieving fulfillment in the new. And this idea of old versus new covenants, covenant theology, is one that we talk a lot about here at Sojourn Montrose. But if you didn't grow up in the church or aren't a Christian in the room today, it might just feel like a lot of meaningless theological, like mumble-jumble. And so this morning what I want to point out is that understanding the Bible— and who God is from a covenant perspective can stir something in your soul. It can introduce you to a God who is never changing and has always wanted to offer free grace to his people and has always wanted a people who are seeking after him. And if you're not a Christian, the invitation this morning is for you to know that God. If you are a Christian, the invitation is to lean into an understanding of the covenants, to transform the way you view God, the way you view the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and how you interact with your church community. So let's pray as we get started this morning. Uh, Dear Lord, I just ask that your presence that we know is here in this room would just be felt deeply by us all this morning. That as we um, hear more about covenants and lean into um, what can be a meaty topic, that ultimately what we'd walk away with is just an understanding of you and your character Um, and the way that it has never changed um, throughout the ages, and that you are the same God who wants the same thing for us, and you are God who is always extending grace. Um, And may we just feel that this morning and and leave just comforted by that um, as as we go about our weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start off today defining what a covenant is. And the definition I most like comes from a theologian named O. Palmer Robertson, And he says, a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So if we break this down, there's three things that I think define a covenant. First, that they're bonds. So they're a profound commitment that binds the parties together in a deep and enduring way. This is Exodus 6 kind of stuff, like, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And the second characteristic of covenants is that they're in blood or that they're life and death. So they're not casual promises like, yeah, I'll definitely be there tomorrow. They're promises that affect our souls. And covenants in the Bible are always life and death issues. And they always have something to do with sin. And we know from Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so blood and covenants go hand in hand. It's why we're always talking about blood, singing about blood. The songs we sung this morning had blood, right? It's because it's, it's, you have to have the blood to forgive the sins. And then finally, the covenant is sovereignly administered. It's not a negotiated agreement, but it's one that's initiated, freely given, and defined by God himself. So he's always the one taking the initiative, always the one extending. And so to recap, covenant, it's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. 
Now that we have that definition, I want to spend this morning doing a quick flyby of the seven covenants in the Bible. It's important to know that each one of these covenants build on one another, and, but they're ultimately fulfilled in the last one, which is the new covenant. Also know that there could be multiple sermons preached on each one of these covenants, so I'm probably not doing them justice. But instead, what I want you to be listening to is for two themes. The first is that there's a God, in every one, there's a God constantly calling a people to himself. And the second is that that same God is always extending grace to those people. And then also be thinking about that building aspect. How are these all additive with one another? And how are we getting a fuller and fuller picture of who God is through the covenants? And my hope is at the end of this, you'll see covenants as a helpful tool for reading and understanding scripture and as a way to understand who God is and what purpose he's striving towards. So if we dive in, the first covenant is the covenant of works, and that's found in Genesis 1 to 2. And the essence of the covenant is this. God gives man a job to do, dominion over the earth, a marriage to be fruitful in, a weekly structure to follow in the Sabbath, and the ability to walk with God on a daily basis. Our part of the covenant is to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is the only one of the covenants that doesn't have a redemptive aspect to it, because it doesn't need to be redeemed. It's our, everything's already perfect. And it, but it still has the two things we talked about. It has a, him calling a people to himself. He's literally created them so he could walk in the garden with them. And he's freely extending grace to them. He's giving them purpose. He's giving them companionship. He's giving them the earth to steward for no work of their own. And if you've been around the church for a while, you know that it starts to get a lot worse from here. Man does eat from the tree, and we enter into a stage where every covenant from this point onwards has a redemptive aspect to it all leading towards the new covenant. The first redemptive covenant is the covenant of Adam in Genesis 3. This is after they've eaten from the tree, and the curse of sin enters the world. And the curse of sin is part of the covenant of Adam. There's a promise that things are about to get harder. Sin is here. It's going to make everything worse. But there's the hopeful promise as part of the new covenant too. That eventually the offspring of man will, will fight and win against the serpent who's the devil. We see this promise in Genesis where God says to the devil in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And our two themes are still present, right? So God is still with them. He's calling a people to himself. He's literally still talking directly to Adam and his descendants, providing for them. And God is freely extending grace. When they realize they're unclothed, he makes clothes for them from an animal he presumably kills, which is the first atonement for their sins. And he's promising to feed of Satan to come from Adam's offspring. After Adam, we come to the covenant of Noah in Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. This is after the world has been destroyed in a flood as a result of the wickedness of man being great in the earth. But God has saved one man's family. It's Noah. And the covenant with Noah is a promise of preservation, where the Lord promises to never again destroy the world with a flood. But God is recognizing that sin is going to continue to be a problem he knows that all mankind is born with sin. He says in Genesis, I will, but he makes a promise, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So he's basically saying, I'm not going to give man what he's owed. I'll find another way. He's promising the solution to the pervasiveness of sin will not be what we deserve, which is total destruction. And so we see our two themes present here too. God's desire to call people to himself is present in the way he's committing to preserve the earth and mankind. And his, and his free extension of grace is present as he doesn't ask for anything in return for this provision for Noah's family or in exchange for his promise. And after Noah is the covenant of Abraham. 
who was also called Abram, in Genesis 15 and 17. And in Genesis 15, Abram has been on a journey, heading to the promised land the Lord told him to go to, and he starts to doubt if the Lord's promises are actually going to happen. He's childless, he's nearly 100 years old, but he's been promised a great number of offspring by God. He's looking around asking, like, when is this going to happen? He's actually, he actually literally asks God in Genesis, how am I to know that these things will happen? And so God does something in Genesis, reading and starting Genesis 15, 12, where he says, And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is a sacrifice that was set up earlier. And then it ends and it says, On that day, the, covenant, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And so Abram has this amazing sign happen to him. It's told by God, I know what's going to happen. I'm in full control. I'm going to provide this thing. I, and I'll even tell you what your descendants will do, I'll, but I'm still going to promise you that I'm never going to desert them. But in the very next chapter of Genesis, it doesn't fully seek in for Abram. Um, he, he then goes to sleep with his wife's servant, Hagar, thinking that he has no other way to have a son. But despite this, God again, God again is gracious to him, and he pulls him aside and reminds him that he is going to make from Abram, who, who he is about to rename Abraham, a people. This is in Genesis 17. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so this covenant is a covenant of promise. God is saying, I will make from you a great people, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. That's the first covenantal theme again. And he is promising Abraham that he will do this despite the people's rebellion away from them that he knows is coming, and despite Abram's own desire to take things into his own hands. And that's our second theme of the freely given grace. So why is he doing this? Why Abraham? Well, Genesis 15, 16 tells us that Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. That's it. That's the key. God is making these unconditional promises to this man solely because of this man's faith. And Abram reminds us that God, for thousands of years, has always asked for one thing from us, which is faith in him and his promises. So to pause on this flyby real quick, we've, so far we've seen three redemptive covenants. And each one of these three have built on each other. The covenant of Adam, where the harsh realities of sin and the curse is established, but also an eventual hope of Satan's defeat. Then the covenant with Noah, where God is saying, I'm not just going to wipe out sin through destruction. I'm going to preserve mankind and will provide salvation another way. Then with Abraham, God tells us more about that coming salvation. He says, I will establish a great nation through Abraham's descendants, and that through them all the nations on the earth will be blessed. This, this covenant with Abraham signifies a further development in the redemptive narrative. 
So it's, it's no longer from humanity in general, which is the covenant with Noah, just for the whole earth and all of humanity, but it's through a specific lineage through which the Savior of the world will come. And it foreshadows the global scope of the redemption that is to come through Christ. It says all nations will be blessed. After the covenant of Abraham, we have two more covenants to get through before the new covenant. It's the covenant of the law with Moses and the covenant of the kingdom with David. The covenant of the law is again an example of God's desire for a holy people. And the law is not just a set of rules, it's a divine framework for living as a community under God's sovereignty. Exodus 19, 5-6 shows this, where it says, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here, God's not only establishing a legal system, he's doing exactly what we said was our first covenantal theme. He's calling a people to himself, and he's setting them apart. This covenant also showcases our second theme of the grace of God. The sacrificial system of the law, which was explained by Cole last week, is a way that God extends grace. It provides a mean for atonement, symbolizing that the people's sins would not rest upon them, but be passed over. It points us to the ultimate atonement in Jesus, who takes upon himself the sins of the world. And there's also grace in just the very giving of the law. If you think about the context, it's a brand new nation. It's been recently liberated from centuries of slavery. And now it's being given a structure, a way to live and relate to one another under God's guidance. These laws, which are often just used as restraints, are an extension of God's love and and grace for his people. They provide a moral and ethical framework that distinguishes Israel from other nations, ensuring their well-being, justice, and societal harmony, all under the rule of God. The last covenant before the new covenant is the covenant of David, the covenant of the kingdom, which is found in 2 Samuel 7. And this one is again additive to the ones before it. God has his chosen people. He's given them laws to live by. And now he says, I see your need for a leader. And so he goes to Israel and says, I'm going to give you a king who will be a son to me. 2 Samuel 7, 14 literally says about David, it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He then makes promises to David about this kingdom and about David's lineage. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And then to David, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And he does this while freely extending grace. He's not asking David to do something to receive this gift of a lineage that will be established forever and steadfast love that will never depart. And ultimately, this covenant of David should sound pretty familiar to us. It's a great example of how the old covenants are a taste of the ones to come. We have a kingdom being established, a king who God calls a son, and a forever dwelling place for God's people to live in together. This covenant with David gives the Israelites and us sitting here today a preview of what's to come in the new covenant. And the Israelites had a long time to wait for that new covenant. After the covenant with David, there's a 400-year period where they, the Israelites forget their part of the covenant. They go against the law. They appoint other kings. They don't live into the promise that was made to them through Abraham. They're in desperate need of a reboot. A new covenant because they've fallen down on their side of things in the old one. And in the midst of this, God continuously sends prophets to his people to call them back to him. And one of those prophets is Jeremiah, who's the author of the prophecy quoted in the text read for us this morning. In that passage, we hear this promise of the new covenant that will be so much better than the old. So if we go back to to today's text from Hebrews, it It starts off and says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. 
For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then the author of Hebrews directly quotes Jeremiah, where he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Again, that's that same first covenantal theme. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's our second theme of the free grace. And the passage in Hebrews concludes, In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And to be clear, this new covenant is established by Jesus. We see this when he institutes the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This covenant is Christ's body and blood broken and poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And the author of Hebrews and Jeremiah are telling us that this new covenant is so great that it makes the old covenant a shadow. It's a glorious new reality we can live into as Christians. It isn't that the old covenants are no longer true. It's that they're obsolete. The placeholders of the old covenants are faded into the background, the bright light of the new covenant, and they're no longer biting now that the real one has come. What God promised to Abraham is here in Christ, and thanks to the new covenant, we now have better promises to hope, to hope in. And there's three things I want us to notice about this new covenant. First is that it has something to do with our hearts, and second is that it removes the need for a mediator or a teacher. And the third is that it's the full forgiveness of sins, not just the passing over of those sins. That it has to do with the hearts is evidence when, when God says, I will write the law in their hearts, and this signifies a transformational change in the Old Covenant because they used to be, laws used to be external and written on stone. And now the New Covenant, fulfilled in Christ, implies an inward change, a heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. It reflects the promise of regeneration and the indwelling of the Spirit, which is also from Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, where it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus himself also promises this change in John 14, 26, where he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this indwelling of the Holy Spirit lets Christians have a genuine, heartfelt obedience to God, not just an outward adherence to laws. And the second thing Jeremiah's prophecy points us to is the diminished role of a human mediator or teacher under the new covenant. It says, they shall not teach, for they shall all know me. And teachers in Jeremiah's times are the priests, who are also the mediators. This is no longer necessary. We now have a direct personal relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and mankind. This doesn't mean that we don't need pastors and teachers in the church. Paul talks about those roles being necessary often. But you don't need, to be a, but you don't need a pastor to mediate with God on your behalf. Everyone has direct access to God and an individual responsibility to know him. Third, the prophecy promises the full forgiveness of sins. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's very distinct from the, covenants, from the old covenant sacrificial system, which covered sin temporarily but could not remove it completely. The new covenant through Christ's sacrifice offers full and final forgiveness. It's complete atonement, not just a covering or passing over. 
It's the fulfillment of the promise made in Psalm 103.12, where as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. This full forgiveness is the gospel, and it's foundational to our faith. So this new covenant is better. In every aspect, there's better promises for us to take hold of and rest in as Christians. Compared to the covenant of works, our prayers and ability to talk to God directly without a priest as a mediator is restored. So our day-to-day prayer life can be a personal conversation. Compared to the covenant with Adam, it says sin has been defeated, the serpent's head has been crushed. Compared to the covenant with Noah, it doesn't just promise us that the earth won't be destroyed in a flood. It promises us a new earth. Compared to the covenant with Abraham, it's expanded for all people. Galatians 3 says, For many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's, neither, there's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This means we can have real hope that our neighbors, who come from all sorts of backgrounds and places, can be part of God's family. And it lays the foundation for covenant membership and is why we talk about being all one church family. Compared to the covenant with Moses, we don't need priests who spent years memorizing the law. The law is in us thanks to the Spirit. And that same law is no longer sitting unfulfilled with no one ever to, able to live up to it. Jesus has come, and he tells us in Matthew 5, 17, he's fulfilled the law, and he's the perfect sacrifice so that our sins are now forgiven. Finally, compared to the covenant of David, the kingdom is here now. And Luke 1, tells us that of his kingdom, there will be no end. So for those of you in the room who are Christians, what I want you to hear today is the hope of the new covenant. We have a perfect mediator. We have the Spirit writing the law in our hearts. We have complete forgiveness of our sins thanks to Christ's sacrifice. We have a God who is never changing. From the Old Testament to the New, he's always desired the same things, a people for himself and to extend unending grace to those same people. And we get to remember the truths of the New Covenant every time we take the Lord's Supper. For the non-Christians in the room, I want to invite you into belief in this New Covenant and into the Gospel. As Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if you haven't, believe. Have the same faith as Abraham. That's all that's required. And the passage we say, as the passage we study today says, there's an opportunity for you to meet a God who is merciful towards your iniquities, who will remember your sins no more. And that is good news. Let's pray.